Hello everyone, my name is Sophie von Lohr and I'm here today to talk to you about a lot of interesting things. But before I get to that, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. One, I'm a neuroscientist. Two, I'm a bioengineer. Three, I'm a system engineer. I will share a little bit about myself and my quirky background and where I come from as a kid in chaos that has come to invent a robotic arm that works with eye signal as a kid that has now been very interested in leadership and creating devices that hopefully is gonna change the course of humanity. But who knows, this might be interesting to you and who knows, you might learn something. I hope you do, stay tuned. Here's what I'm constantly curious about. Who are we and how do we decide who we are? I look at cross-cultural and cognitive diversity, the self-construct, how we put ourselves together, who we tell the world we are. You know, it's interesting that uh, a lot of things have changed in the United States since I was a kid. Uh, the U.S. has been the center of um, intellectual migration for decades. And now there's conversations about building walls and keeping people out. Uh, cognitive migration means that students with higher education come from other countries and other cultures, and they become to become professionals in the United States. And it, it brings about a whole change in, in the, uh, the development of a country. For instance, in 2019, in the, U, the US winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for physics, was one of two Americans who was a uh, immigrant, as was the Nobel Peace Prize winner for chemistry, also an immigrant. Uh, immigrants have won actually 38% of Nobel Prizes awarded to Americans in chemistry, medicine, physics since 2000. So it's a very interesting thing to look at how we put ourselves together and how we decide who we are both nationally, um, who we decide we are um, personally and, and community-wise. And I want to explore that today with an amazing guest, but I'm going to talk to you about that in a moment. I am Dov Barron. I am your host, and I'm here to help you get even more curious. You see, uh, you can find out about hiring me as a speaker and executive uh, advisor or strategist for your organization by going to DoveBarron.com. And we are grateful for this episode because it is sponsored by uh, MagCast. <laughs> Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach or content expert or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and professional status in the eyes of your market and to do so all at once? This is your way for you to go from being invisible to getting a meeting with absolutely anyone. You can find out more by going to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot C-O, where first-time publishers create thriving business magazines. That's magcast.co. And remember, you can join in our conversation about this show in our Facebook and LinkedIn groups. Just go and look for the Curiosity Bites group. All right, let's chomp down on this delicious episode. Our guest on this delicious episode is Sophie Von La. Uh, she is an interesting human being, an interesting soul, whose mission is to 
create the betterment of human condition, she is one of my, one of the people I really enjoy talking to because uh, she is not in a box. And as you'll discover, there's a lot to learn from that. She has invented, she invented a robotic arm that works with eye signals at the age of, wait for it, 21. She also created a nanocarbon brain electrode that has the potential to cure Alzheimer's. Small things, you know, probably did it over lunch. Uh, <laughs> in addition, she has three engineering degrees. She is currently working on an organizational leadership PhD. She spent 12 years of leadership experience working with Fortune 500 companies, including uh, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, Freddie Mac, Lowheed Martin, etc. She's done so, so much. Um, she's a multi-million, she's run multi-million dollar contracts through her lens of understanding humans from the psychological to neuro leadership standpoints. Uh, and in her spare time, she likes to practice a Persian instrument known as the Satar. So ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome Sophie Bernard! Good to have you with us. I am so excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. I love weird, wonderful human beings who like to think about things in the way that others don't. And I want to talk to you specifically, Sophie, about the fire of your life, the fires that have formed you that could have destroyed you but didn't. Oh, sure. Um, so let's just start from the beginning. Sure. Uh, how about that? So I was born in 1987. And for those people that know the history, that means towards the end of Iran and Iraq war. Right. So unfortunately, um, Iraq was dropping chemical bombs on the cities at the time I was born. So when I was wow. born, my, <laughs> my mom was uh, rushing to a shelter and she goes to labor because of stress. So she goes to the hospital and the doctor has fleed the country the day before. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, she, she encountered a lot of... Uh, I'd like to see the doctor. I'm sorry he left the country. Yeah, just... <laughs> Nothing personal. <laughs> Nothing personal. His plane left a few hours ago. Um, so that's the beginning. So I've, I'm a product of chaos. Uh, I'm a product of literally born in the middle of chaos. And I can tell you that it never got better. Uh, it only got stranger <laughs> and more complex. So as I grew up in Iran, I had to deal with a lot of adversities, including my family being highly political and against the government, um, just the environment, not very female friendly, um, just not exactly for someone as curious as me, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. The cat wasn't doing well. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there is there is a saying in in Iran that like the black cats that are known to be kind of not good almond, they become stronger uh, mm. genetically because they get the kids throw stones at them so often that right. they they find better ways to survive. 
So in so many ways, I've become a black cat uh, in the environment I grew up. So, I, I mean, I don't so know. So how long were you? How long were you in Iran? Like, because you said you're. So I just want to give context again. So, you know, the uh, the uh, the you're born at the birth of the new Islamic Iran right. after the Shah is gone. Um, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei is huge and there's a lot of aggression a lot of repression starts to come in with the the sharia law and your your parents are are intellectuals uh and and high profile people uh and you're about to be born your mom goes into stress you're born into this chaos yes. right? i mean really literally born into chaos uh in a world that people probably don't know, or many people don't know, um, that Iran was a very progressive country uh, under the Shah. I mean, if you go in, online and look at pictures of Iran during the Shah, you'll see women in mini skirts, you'll see you know, very modern buildings and very progressive. And then all this, this wave comes. Um, tell us about growing up then i mean how long were you that there before you left the u.s that left for um, the u.s 16? or left for other countries 16 so i i would say that all my formative years i spent in iran and you're right it, it was a matter of people couldn't adjust like it was one of those things that you think something like that happens and you're fine but then you're not fine. Um, and mm -hmm. the new normal never becomes okay. The new normal doesn't ever justify itself. Right. And it becomes, you don't harden. It's one thing that people don't understand. It, it, it hurts constantly. <laughs> right. So as, as a child, as a female growing up in Iran in, around that time, I mean, even to this day, if you look at my forehead, you see that there are parts of my forehead that I call it Mickey Mouse because it just invades uh, my, my face as it goes through my eyebrows. Imagine wearing a hijab, like a scarf, and mm -hmm. that showing. Mm -hmm. And um, twice I got arrested for that little of pieces of hair. Um, wow. As a child, one, I was like 10 years old and one I was like 12 or 13. And it was terrifying because you could get up to 60 lashes for hair showing. Um, you could get jailed and worst cases. It's, it's, it was horrifying. I can tell you that it's a thousand times. Like, it's not even comparable right now. But in the beginning, it was really different. Well, as you know, I was there in 2016 in Tehran and, and had a beautiful time and loved, loved Tehran and loved, loved, loved. Uh, the Iranian people, but one of the things that was fascinating to me um, was that the women were all blonde. Uh, right. Not all, but a lot of them were blonde, right. um, meaning their hair was dyed. And by the way, that means I knew what color their hair was. So if you're thinking, well, isn't their hair covered up? No, they have a little bit of a schmatha, a little bit of a, a, a cloth over part of it. They have to have that, sure. Now, a lot of women are in full hijab, but most of the women are not. They've got blonde hair. They've got Western makeup, um, beautiful Western clothing, um, and 
of course, uh, the, the mark of status, they've had nose jobs, um, and many of them kept the, the, the bandage on to prove that they'd had the nose job. So that sounds like a very different Iran than you grew up in. Yeah. Now, it's certainly not the Shah's Iran or, or, or pre-Ayatollah Khamenei, but it is different. So is that very different than what you grew up? Was it much more strict when you were up to yeah. 16 years old? I mean, it gradually got better um, even until I left. But I think in the beginning of the revolution, uh, things were very strict and scary. And a lot of people were, would get arrested for absolutely no reason. Somebody in my family got arrested because they were selling um, sh shaving for men. But in sh Sharia law, you shouldn't shave your face as a man. Yeah. Uh, so he was in prison for many years for like selling shaving material. Like, I don't know, it was like a razor or whatever kind of company. So, <laughs> so the guy went to jail for selling razors and shaving cream. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> people I mean, I just want people to grasp that for a minute. <laughs> like, you know, right now, as we record this, People are pissed off that they have to wear a mask and they feel like it's an infringement on their, on their freedom because <clears throat> somebody is, some medical person is saying, uh, you might want to wear a mask because there's a virus and it's a way to protect yourself and protect the people you love. As opposed to, we're going to put you in jail for multiple years for having sold shaving cream or razors, let alone having shaved. <laughs> Yes. Or having a bit of your hair showing, you might get 60 lashes. So let's let's apply that law to wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. I think everybody's suddenly wearing a mask. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and the mask is for yourself. That is not. Yeah. It, it, so that for me is, is, a, is, a, is a way for us to get some context. And I like that uh, around these things because, you know, I think that oftentimes this, we have this fragility around freedom mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and that we don't really understand freedom that we've become kind of entitled around freedom that we don't really understand. Like I am so anti-war um, in every possible way. Um, and at the same time, I have a ton of respect for vets um, who actually go to, you know, war for a country. Personally, I would never do it, but I respect what they do. And the fact that we treat these people poorly is insane for me. It's just nuts. Um, these people are giving their lives for their country. And other people are saying, well, my freedom is that I don't get to wear a mask. Yes, your freedom is. It's also your freedom to die and kill your granny with it as well. But freedom is something that is earned. Uh, and I think that we're, we're very entitled around it. And, I, and that's why I wanted to ask you about that, because you grew up knowing what, it is, what it's like to not be free. Oh, yeah. To live in what one might call a prison state, mm -hmm. because, yes, you can go out and you can go buy your groceries and you can take your kids to school, but you're not exactly free as you would be in a, in another environment. Do you remember what that was like for you? Because, you know, I get from you in our previous conversations, um, 
that you are naturally a curious person. Yeah. Right. I mean, aside from having very bright people as parents who would obviously have been curious, you were very curious. And so not only curious in a restrictive environment, but you're curious in a restrictive environment and you happen to be female in an environment that's pretty much anti-female at that time. Talk to us about what that was like growing up in that. Oh my God, it was a nightmare, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, my parents did the best they could. And of course. And, and, you know, my, my mother, she, she was in somewhat of an equivalent of Peace Corp before the revolution, but that fell apart. Of course. And she was a civil engineer. And she decided, because engineer, like female engineers couldn't work uh, right after the revolution. Once again, this has changed um, right now. Mm-hmm. She got a PhD in psychology, so she changed her major hundred uh, percent, one eighty degrees, just to have a job. And she was a successful psychologist. But what was interesting to me that now that I am an engineer, partly is because I wanted to follow what she couldn't do. Ah, I wanted to fulfill the dream that she never got to really see as coming to manifestation so it was it was it was kind of like a karmic thing for me um but talking about my mom one of the things that she did in that environment because there were so many things that was almost dystopian it was like a scary to just be in an environment where things are things that you would find as healthy and normal were not non-existent and things Mm -hmm. that were objectively evil and bad ever justified give us an example of both of those so just as as a female going to school right um there is this local chapter of your religious police that operates within the school Mm -hmm. and they have all the right to tell you what to be what not to be in a form that it almost becomes a sense of brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Um, in a form that is, you have to be a bit conformist to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not normal, especially that if it's attached to telling you who you are, like what a slut you are for showing a piece of your hair. Um, I, I don't think that level of calling you slut 20 times in a row when you're 12 years old because you showed a piece of your hair mm-hmm. is viable. Uh, and this is happening inside the school in a room where you're sitting on a chair that is intentionally designed to be uncomfortable. So the environment is designed for torture and brainwashing and just putting you in that environment that, to condition you to behave. So talking about my mom, she actually did something fascinating, which I will be always grateful. She actually created this random story of of three female characters with different ambitions and ideas in life. One was like a scientist, one was like into sociology, one was like an activist. I don't remember exactly what one of them, the name was Emily, I specifically remember, as role models. So every night she would come up with this story of three girls that live so she so this is a story your mom would tell you while you were a child exactly and Um, so so 
to make so these were three women who certainly did not fit with fit within the cultural defines that you were confronted with every single day Uh, and it's interesting because you said your mom went from being an engineer to being a psychologist because um it's like she is giving you the the anti-viral brainwashing Mm -hmm. because you're being brainwashed every day and she's coming on and saying let's rinse that out a little bit let's rinse that wash out and put something else in of women who are empowered and and are doing things that are different exactly when you heard those stories what i wonder what that was like because you know that is that is a juxtaposed reality you know because if i'm a child and i've grown up in the environment you you're describing those women don't exist right right they they just don't exist so no she might as well have been talking about unicorns right because so there was how- no internet back then or no. or tv that you could get those channels so this is absolutely you are isolated from that reality there is no way you have access to that i kept it as a piece of hidden secret uh, in my mind, carrying it around with me on a daily basis. Every morning I would wake up and tell myself what one of the characters that I really loved, her name was Emily. Um, and I, she was my role model. So if I was in a situation where I would feel like I'm being tortured or told not to do something or not have too much opinion, I was always one of those people that had too much opinion in the class. Um, and I was punished for that. I would tell myself, what would Emily do? Mm. I, I would always think about Emily would have not cared and internalized this. So the, yeah. Um, so I, I'm fascinated to know, did you share that with your friends? No, no, I was worried. I was I was too worried to... I mean, it's one of those situations that your fight and flight is very, yeah. very strong. So you're kind of almost in this constant defense mode. So I wasn't, trust is a very much of a luxury. Um, or to that Trust is, was a luxury. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So I didn't share, those were way too, I mean, I compartmentalized so many things in my life um, that came natural. Uh, you don't share with people who you are. So that is is fascinating. Uh, so you're growing up in this environment. Uh, you're born in chaos, you know, as we talked about. You grow up in this environment, which is incredibly repressive. Mm-hmm. And again, I want to just reiterate this for our audience. That Iran has changed dramatically from what it was it is not uh pre ayatollah khamenei uh, uh western uh that it was but it's certainly not what it was uh, just after the revolution as i said i was there in 2016 uh, with people driving normal cars and having normal lives and going out for dinner and and taking care of their families and uh what i know because i did the research was that the uh there are more per capita more women with MBAs than 
than in most Western countries because, you know, women are highly educated there. So let's just sort of dispel some of those uh, stereotypes that people are likely to be carrying. But we're talking about the Iran you lived in, which is in the in the 90s, you know, um, and, and so that's a very different, very different world. When I look at that and I think about growing up in that, I grew up in a, in a difficult situation, but nothing like that. Were you, before that all came about, and of course you won't know, you'll only know by stories, were your family reasonably well off? Did they have a good lifestyle, et cetera? So my, not yes and no. And the reason is that my mother um, was a descendant of like some Persian king and the family had a lot of money. And after revolution, that was taken away. It was confiscated. Um, my father's due to some problems, could not get a job for the longest time. So our majority of our income was from my mom's teaching job in the University of Tehran. Right. So we had a stream of income. It was very, very modest. But I can tell you that our home was, you know, a place that was full of books and houseplants and um, intellectual conversations. You mean like your own home is now? (laughs) <laughs> you're absolutely right I, the minute I came out of my mouth I thought about it <laughs> you're living it you're now living in your mom's house I am like, you're in charge <laughs> yes and um so we were in deprived um and wealth no. not always defined by but no yes. but what I was thinking about is did you you know I wonder about the economic difference for your mom and dad before the revolution and after the revolution, because they probably, I imagine they lived very well before. Right. And then they, you know, lived on a very minimal uh, lifestyle afterwards. So um, you would not have known that, that previous quote abundance, but now talk to us a little bit about, uh, because I want to get this, I want to get more of the story. The Cadillac, because we're talking about the fire here and what forms us. So um, your mom's telling you these wonderful stories and and inspiring you um, and giving you these uh, psychological role models. Uh, And by then, your mom's already a psychologist and she's teaching at the university. Is the plan always or are they talk to you about it? Do they let you know that the idea is to get out? Or is that never spoken of? Is that a secret? It was a secret. And we left um, very unexpectedly under special circumstances that I don't want to get into here. But when we did leave, it felt that I'm not ready. It felt that my reality Mm -hmm. is about to get shattered. Um, Yes. Because when you are in a war zone, and whether that would be psychological, absolutely war zone, whatever, in a, and and my my situation is not that special. It is a special in a way that it went down, but I think a lot of people can like just see themselves in it because you can live with a alcoholic father and feel the same way, you know. Absolutely. Uh, 
Um, so when you are in that war zone, that uh, high level of stress, I think you create a lot of defenses and you just keep on adding to those turtle shells, right? Mm-hmm. Keep on piecing together duct tapes and things like that psychologically to protect yourself as well as, as much as you can. And it's just, you carry around that shell that is very useless everywhere. <laughs> so when they tell you that a good part of it is about to go away and you have to be confronted to, with a new environment where none of the t- devices you created to protect yourself is no longer applicable God gracious, that's a scary. That makes you wonder at that moment. Can you tell, I mean, I, I don't want to push you, but can you tell us a little bit about the day of leaving? Sure. The day of leaving was very chaotic. My parents were extremely fighting. Um, fighting with <laughs> each other. Yeah, they were, they were arguing very loudly. Right. Um, and <laughs> at some point, um, I don't remember if it was my father or my mother. It's like, oh, I'm not coming. <laughs> so there it goes another piece of my, you know, security. Mm-hmm. Um, they both ended up coming, but right. it was interesting that nothing, you could take nothing for granted. I mean, going back to your conversation of taking freedom for granted, I mean, I couldn't take safety for granted in no. any way. Um, and there was a lot of questions about where are we going, what we are doing, what, how is that going to... It was a very dangerous, stressful situation. And um, thank God it worked out. Were you... <clears throat> so was it... Did you have to secretly leave? I mean, you, you know, because you couldn't just go, oh, I'm going to the airport, right? right. Um, it was... You know, I, th- I want people to try and grasp this, Sophie. So... You know, I mean, it's for most people, you know, I, I believe what you just said, by the way, I want to be clear about that, that the trauma is subjective. Um, and so this is not saying anybody's situation is worse or better than anybody else's situation. People say, well, at least I wasn't raped. Yeah, well, maybe you were psychologically, but not physically. Well, at least I wasn't tortured. Well, maybe you were psychologically, but not physically. Uh, And it's hard for people to grasp that. And it's the reason I want people to, to have an understanding of this, because we all are operating in the world based on the frameworks we have. And the framework that many of our listeners are going to have is, okay, you wanted to leave and, you know, there was a regime and maybe you didn't have enough money. So you had to save up out of a, out of $3 a week, you had to save 20 cents so you could find a, so you could buy a plane ticket and go, but it wasn't like that. It, it like I'm help. I want people to understand the desire to leave and even the money to leave is not enough. So yeah. Can you walk us through a little bit more of the understanding of what it takes to leave that kind of a situation? Help us to have a sense of the tension of, of, of the potential of what might happen. I mean, you know, you get 40 lashes for showing your hair. What the hell are you going to get for trying to leave the country? Yeah, and, and, and the experience that I had, again, another not unique experience. I know a friend of mine who left wearing cheap clothing literally and yeah like just inside the sheep 
uh, skin. So dressed as a sheep. Yes, uh, wow. crossing the border. And imagine going to the bathroom with as the sheep is doing its business, you're doing it too for like seven, 10 days as you're crossing the border. Wow. And that's your experience. And when I talked to him about that, he mentioned that, it, that his experience was very common. And, and that was because he was Baha'i. And yeah. Baha'is have a harder time than the majority of people in Iran, especially in the beginning of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, extreme religious minorities. But my experience, I can tell you that, that the scariest part for me, besides the fact that as a 16-year-old, your brain is still forming, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, was the idea that I had one suitcase, a carry-on, and my father dropped it on the floor. And it's so funny that I can actually hear the sound as it hits the floor even today. And he's extremely anxious and afraid. And you can tell from the face. And he's calm human being. So that was a, mm-hmm. a you know, abnormal moment. And he tells me, pack wisely. You will never see anything here ever again. And I cannot tell you as a child that moment of decision-making, that moment of what do I take now mm-hmm. was, was such a... And I have nightmares about that. Um, I have so many nightmares that I don't have to pack. That's an ongoing nightmare and that's because maybe it relates to me feeling not prepared for what's about to come and it's a very deep-rooted fear of what stands on the other side of the equation can we get arrested and sentenced to death can we get shoot down on the border what what is about to happen what is on the even if we make it, what is this America that, what does that even mean for me and my mm-hmm. family? So there was, even the future didn't feel any better. So. Yeah. So I'm, that's what I'm trying to help people grasp here because um, as my people, people who follow me know, I say all the time, normal isn't healthy. It's just whatever you get used to. And the egoic mind will cling to normal because you've built mechanisms and safety mechanisms and ways to cope around normal. So if normal is you get called a slut 20 times a day because you show a piece of your hair at school, that becomes normalized. If you are living in an environment that is repressive, that becomes normalized. And, um, if you are offered something better, there is a psychological resistance to that better because it is separate from the normal. And what's more, uh, people don't understand. They go, well, how could you not want to leave? It was horrible. Because that's that statement, how could you not want to leave, is a cognitive statement. Whereas the the desire to stay is not a cognitive process. It's an unconscious psychological survival process. And this is why I wanted to take an entire section to have people grasp, you know, who you are, who you are, 
from who you became, uh, right. uh, who you were, what that, what framed that, um, because you know you're obviously insanely bright. You come from bright family, you know, uh, with position and all those things, and then comes the revolution, and then you're, you know, your hair's covered up. You're you're never allowed to get your freedom of expression. You're born in chaos. You grow up in in this restrictive environment, it's normal. The brainwashing is normal. And yet this magnificent gift is that your mother decides to tell you a myth mm -hmm. of three powerful females every single day to ingrain in you this possibility that is beyond the normal. But as I said, it could have just as easily been a unicorn story because it would have been as far-fetched as that. And then there becomes a moment, the transition to the possibility of becoming the unicorn, exactly. the possibility of stepping into that and the resistance psychologically because of safety to becoming the unicorn. But then you come and you leave. In the next part of the show, we're going to talk about that, what that was, what that led to, and how it began to form you um, from not having to cover up, not have to hide. But my guess is you probably did. So we're going to come back in, in a little while uh, after this section. Until then, I really want you to think about yourself before you go into the next section as you are as an audience member are listening to this i mean i really want you to think about how you take or potentially take your freedom for granted how you um how maybe you assume trust rather than ex experiencing it as a luxury and just think about the freedoms that you have that you might want to appreciate as you listen to this particular episode of curiosity bites we'll be back for another episode in a little while so stay curious my friends stay curious